Welcome to Conversations with Quiet Leaders. My name is Juliet Morris. I believe there is greatness in leading and building teams through powerful listening, what's being said and what's being heard. In this podcast, you'll hear from quiet leaders who are being more bold, more brave and more comfortable with who they are. Today, I'm delighted to welcome Fiona Alexander. Fiona is co-founder of a strategic consultancy and advocacy firm and a professor at the American University. So I'm delighted to welcome here, Fiona. Hi, it's very nice to meet you. And thank you again for the invitation to chat. Looking forward to it. Yeah, fantastic. Tell us a little bit about introversion and quiet leadership. Yeah, so I think, um, I mean, for me, I never actually really appreciated or realized I was an introvert. Um, uh, you know, I did, you know, through different work experiences and training and developments, all the different personality tests and Myers-Briggs and things like that, and always scored very high extrovert on all of those things until about six years ago when I was surprised that the score came back as an introvert. I started to give it a bit of thought um, because I was so surprised that at the shift. And I, I think I realized or, or I think the conclusion I've come to is that, um, you know, my career in government for about 20 years was very outward facing. Um, and I dealt with a lot of personalities and people and um, managing people and negotiations with, with stakeholders and other government officials around the world. And, you know, very lengthy, long days and, and long meetings traveling. And I think over the years, maybe that sort of took a lot out of me or maybe sort of helped shift me in terms of awareness of myself. But, you know, I would go to um, a, a UN meeting or an Internet governance type of negotiation um, and for seven, 10, five days, you know, really be engaging with people 16, 17 hours a day um, and often in long negotiation sessions. And then I would so look forward to getting on the plane where I could just zone out and not talk to anyone. And then I would come home and I would spend an entire weekend in my house not talking to anyone because I just needed that time to recover. And I started to realize that maybe all this engagement and outward facing with people, which I did and, and enjoyed at some level, maybe it wasn't my natural preference. And that's when I realized maybe this is when I'd become more of an introvert. So it was definitely a much later uh, realization in, in my life and career that I had more introverted preferences and, and what that meant for me. I'm really interested in your background and you alluded to, you know, working with government and the UN. Tell us a little bit more about that. So um, I went to American University here in DC for graduate school. And while I was uh, going to graduate school, like you do here in Washington, I uh, did an in several internships. And one of those uh, was at the National Telecommunications and Information Administration. Um, it's a part of the US Department of Commerce. And I ended up going to work there. Uh, and then eventually a, a few years into it, ended up running the international office that I worked in, which meant that I was managing a team of people uh, that my team or I directly was working with other parts of the U.S. government, our State Department and other interagency partners and would be representing the United States uh, government and the administration in different, you know, U.N. settings or, you know, international organizations that dealt with tech and telecom policy. So whether it was the International Telecom Union in Geneva or the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, the OECD in Paris, or whether it was going over to London to meet with our counterpart agency, which uh, has changed names over the years, BISP or now, you know, different now it's um, AMCS, I think, Culture Media Sport. So th that was our corresponding 
place and you know a, lo a lot of engagement and a lot of time and i loved you know and I, I love doing this work and i still you know do, do this work to some degree but from a different stakeholder seat as opposed to the outward person but i would often be the person you know in a room full of five or six hundred people on a microphone you know representing the united states and in many cases arguing with a lot of people in the rest of the world that had a different approach or vision as to how to do technology policy um, so, you know, again, it was the negotiations could go uh, quite late, they could go till two or three in the morning, just depending on, you know, the, the, the meeting structure and the environment, and then you would start again first thing at 8am. So this, this could be quite lengthy, lengthy days. You've started your own consultancy for the last few years. How has your transition been from that, you know, significantly important role to what you do now? It's, it's been an interesting break for me. So when I, I left government uh, about two years ago and uh, with my boss at the time and now and friend, we co-founded a consulting company and we have a few other folks that have joined us. Now we're, we're a team of four. Um, and what we do is advise and uh, different clients on, on different uh, issue sets related to technology policy, uh, both DC you know, issues, but you know, Europe issues or UN broad-based issues. And so the nature of my job, while the subject matter is similar, what I do now is very different. So in my my government job for you know close to 20 years, I was obviously out doing the negotiations and managing people and helping sort of develop and, and uh, work through what a US government position would be on an issue, including working with different companies. Now we're advising companies or and I'm advising companies on how to influence or participate in the process that I used to run or oversee. So my, my role is very different. I, you know, I give advice, I, I give suggestions, but I'm not necessarily executing on, on the work in the way that I did before. Um, so in addition to that, I, I do some stuff with the university and um, teach classes here and there, um, and then have some junior fellows we're doing some research projects on. So what I get to do now is be much more of the subject matter expert person that I always dreamed of only being without having to deal with all of the other stuff that went along with being a manager and everything else, which, you know, I enjoyed, but I just found really, really draining. And with your experience of being an extrovert to now being an introvert, how does that play in, in particular in your mentoring work that you do with the university? I, th I think I have a, a much better, and maybe this also comes with just age, a much better appreciation for um, the fact that everybody does things a little bit differently. I think when I was younger, I would just kind of barrel through and do the things that needed to get done and didn't fully appreciate why everybody wasn't keeping up or wasn't doing it the same way. Um, and I did have a, a boss uh, uh, for part of my career in, in the government who was, uh, who was very focused on, and it was really important to him that we did a bunch of leadership and management training. Um, and I found a lot of those sessions you know, while I might sigh a little bit, I actually reflecting back on them, found them super useful because it helped me appreciate that everybody has different communication styles. Everybody has different ways of processing information. So I think my own shift helped me uh, maybe better place to understand other people's perspectives. We go back before before you started work. Uh, and, I, and I guess when you were studying and even before that as a child in school and do you recognize yourself as being an extra of introvert? I think I, you know, I don't think anybody would have ever called me an introvert as a kid. Um, I definitely prefer to sometimes just sit and read books. I read a lot of books a lot. 
but you know, I was also, you know, engaged had lots of different friend groups, um, you know, played sports, um, you, you know, played the violin at one point, you know, it was always doing these other um, here in when I was living in the US, there's this gifted and talented program. And I was always in these after school programs, you know, for smart kids. So I was always doing stuff. Um, I feel like I wasn't, um, I look around at kids today and I think I feel like they're very, very scheduled. I feel like my life was not quite that scheduled. There was a fair amount of time um, where, you know, I'd come home from school, my older brother, you know, would still be at soccer practice. And neither of my parents were home from work yet. So I'd be home by myself for a little bit, you know. So I definitely felt that that time frame, you know, early 80s, maybe was a different time than today. And, um, you know, I was able to spend that time on my own, not realize I was doing it and needed it. But again, at the same time, you know, I was I always had different friends. I was always out with friends. I was always doing things. But I always had my own time back at home, you know, to be able to, to, to do what I wanted to do. Your background is really impressive. Uh, and it fascinated me and, and I, I was interested in how you came to do what you do now what was the journey do you also work for booze Alan Hamilton as well as studying international relations and now you're doing mentorship you've, you've talked about technology you've influenced technology you've been sparring with the UN and various other entities so what was the journey like for you from start to where you are now so when I look at like my career thus far, it makes complete sense. But as I was going through that exercise, I never really wanted to know what, or never, never really knew what I wanted to do. So when I went to um, undergraduate school here in the United States, um, I just never picked a major. I could never decide what I wanted to do. You know, I, I did some science stuff. I almost got a degree in math. You know, and but I always did this model United Nations stuff as a high school student, as a college student. And I always loved history. History was always my kind of first real interest. Um, and so eventually, like I'm headed into like the fourth year of university and my dad was like, you really need to pick a major. And I was like, oh, OK, you know, because I should be done this year. Um, and so I ended up doing um, international studies uh, down, down at university at home. Um, and as I was sort of going into that last semester, I was like, well, I'm not quite sure what I want to do still. Um, I want to do something international. Um, you know, maybe I want to go back to Europe, which is where my mother's from, and then spend a fair amount of my childhood there. So I decided that I should look at schools up here in Washington, D.C. And, and, and I really liked American University because it had some flexibility in its master's program. So I came up to D.C. and I went to AU. And as I was doing my international relations degree, um, they were just wiring the campus for the first time with internet, right? So just to age myself, so 1996 timeframe. Mm -hmm. And um, they had a computer help desk that they set up for students because, you know, you had a computer in your dorm room. And the guys that ran that uh, would only hire, they wouldn't hire computer science people because they couldn't talk to people. They would hire people like me. I had all these customer service type of jobs when I was an undergrad. And so I started working at this computer help desk. Everybody has the same three or four pro basic problems. They teach you that solution set and anything beyond that you escalate up. And so that kind of, um, you know, semester, that first semester of that kind of piqued my interest on technology. And so I ended up, um, you know, getting also teaching statistics when I was in grad school at, at AU that helped pay for my university. 
And I ended up, uh, the way that it works is that you basically, um, you have your main degree and then you have like a related field, almost like a minor. And so in, in the late nineties, I did a, a sort of a technology minor, which was unusual at the time. And, and looking for internships kind of stumbled across the agency I eventually went to go work for and uh, emailed the webmaster, you know, at the time. And they sent my resume to the HR person and they, they were like, oh, your resume is perfect. You should come intern in our international office. I showed up for my first day of the internship and they were like, who are you? Because they hadn't connected. So I interned for a year at this agency and, you know, was really able to kind of marry my interests of international, you know, diplomacy type of work and UN stuff with technology. And this office was the perfect pairing of that. Um, I graduated and I was like, oh, I'm going to, you know, do my you know, finally take a year and just travel around Europe, which I never got to go do because I took my roommate at the time uh, to a job fair and was standing around waiting for her and talked to the guy from Booz Allen and started work like two months, a month later. So I went straight after university, straight into working, worked at Booz Allen for a few years, and then eventually went back to the office where I interned and stayed there for about 19 years. Um, And it was amazing to me, like I I would try to, um, I'd, it was important to me that I didn't like wake up 30 years later and be like, how am I still here? So at like every four or five year junctures, I would make this like, okay, do I still want to be here? And I would go through this mental process of deciding, is this where I want to be or not be? Um, I did a sabbatical at one juncture um, and did six months in New Zealand on a Fulbright type of exercise as well. Um, and then came back from that and was like, do I still want to be here? And I did. I mean, I really enjoyed the work that I did. Um, I worked across four different political administrations presidential administrations in the U.S. You know, it was a very, a very interesting, innovative time on tech policy and, and really enjoyed the work that I did. But and looking back, it makes perfect sense. But at the time, it was all just sort of happen chance and following the things that I found interesting. So It makes sense when you piece it all together, doesn't it? When you were selecting the technology minor and you were talking about, you know, when the the internet started, were you the only woman or how were you perceived or did you think about that at the time? So I never thought about it at the time. Um, And I was looking back, I was one of few women uh, at this help desk, Mm -hmm. one of few women at our stats lab. Um, and then when I went to Booz Allen, I worked with a bunch of guys that just graduated from engineering for different engineering schools. Um, and so the same thing. Um, and then in my office, when I went to the government, there were a lot of women that did these sets of issues. Unusually, the U.S. delegation always had a lot of women, but I never really gave it too much thought. And in fact, in, in the U.N. environment and the ITU, there was always this push to do work on gender issues. And quite honestly, I was kind of like, oh, whatever, you know, I don't, you know. And I never, I never really thought about it. And, and looking back on that, um, I realized how lucky I was because I had these great people around me, um, both men and women that were, you know, uh, appreciative and gave me lots of opportunity. And I definitely was given, you know, you've demonstrated the skill set. We think you are bright and was giving a lot of running room to go and do things. So, you know, I was out negotiating, you know, in the broader UN system and the ITU, you know, in different working groups when I was 26 or 27. So I was quite young. Um, And then when I eventually took over running the office that I ran, um, I became what's called an Art System Senior Executive Service or SES in our federal government system. And, you know, my counterparts were all 10 and 15 years older than me. So I was very young in terms of doing the things that I was doing. And I don't think I really appreciated that either. 
Um, but as again, as I've gotten older and I look around, you know, I realize, oh, no, there aren't that many men around. I would go over to meetings at the White House um, and sometimes you'd be in the situation room or in those conference rooms. And I would look around and I'm like, why are the chairs so high? My feet aren't touching the ground. And everyone around me is a man in a military uniform, right? So after a while, you start, I think I started to appreciate that perspective. But again, when I was younger, I was just doing. And again, had great bosses and great people that provided me that opportunity and that running room to do that, both men and women. So I never thought about it. But as I've gotten older, I've realized the importance of, you know, mentoring and the importance of um, trying to look out and, and help women and do things like that. But it's not something that I did when I was younger. Yeah, it's interesting. I've often reflected on that. Um, I hadn't appreciated it until probably the last 10 or maybe 15 years. I wanted to hire more women because it was a very male dominated environment that I was in and realizing that it was actually quite difficult because of the, the channels and, you know, various things like that. And women were being put off in working in scientific or technical environments because for a number of reasons, as we know. But it's interesting, isn't it, that awareness? And has that influenced you much more now? Because you are a mentor in women in cyber. Is that very much a conscious decision for you? It, it was, actually, because, you know... I- I do, you know, we have our consulting firm. I teach some classes. I do some stuff with some students. Um, and I get approached to do a variety of different other types of things. And when the ITU asked if I would do those women in cyber mentor thing, this was their first um, foray into, into this pilot project. And hopefully they're going to continue it going forward. You know, it's, it's an, not an insignificant amount of my time to commit to do this. And then also you want to keep in touch with people. And I decided that it was important enough that I wanted to actually commit that time and do that. I felt like it was important for me to do what other people had done for me that I didn't realize. Right. So now that I recognize these things, and again, I think as I, when I became a manager, I had to start managing people. Um, In fact, often people that were older than me, often people that I had interned for when I was originally there, you definitely just become a little bit more self-aware of, of the dynamics and personalities and the importance of, of people having people to listen to that have been through that experience or providing people an outlet or a platform or an understanding that, you know, they're not the only one going through what they're going through. And that, that became what has become much more important to me as well. What's the trend now of women in IT or women in cyber that you see? What I see is there's a big push, obviously, um, the UN and the ITU has a girls in ICT day, there's women in IT day, there's all these things and all this emphasis on pushing and bringing people in. Um, but I still think people sort of uh, tend to peak out or stop at middle or just above the top. And obviously, a lot of that has to do with people staying home and having children, going back into the workforce and that kind of thing. So I'm, I'm hopeful that, you know, as we go forward, you know, it won't be so many, so a few women that are at the top, it'll actually become much more of an, much more of a representative of society kind of perspective. Um, But again, there's a lot of emphasis on that now. Um, There's a lot of focus on the need for diversifying, Um, you know, and maybe all of this working from home will help people in terms of managing a better work-life balance and, and allowing that. I mean, I think we'll have to wait and see how that works out, but um, there definitely still is this, you know, big push for women in tech and then you hit a certain level and then there just aren't that many when you look around and it mm-hmm. may just be the pipeline and the timing we'll have to see 
Yeah, it's interesting. I've been working with a number of schools for a few years and there's definitely uh, that what I call off-peak, you know, the, it, the drop there. But there's also something at a very much younger age, the primary school age, and it seems to be, here in the UK anyway, a lack of awareness of opportunities in IT for women. And I was talking to a couple of students, 15-year-old students, a couple of months ago, and they think that IT is still about coding or project management or, you know, doing some of the deep traditional roles that we've heard of, yet there, there are so many new roles coming to play right now. What are your thoughts around encouraging girls through education? And how, how, we, how do we do that? How do we get them to stick at it and stay being curious about that opportunity? So I think with technology, um, I, I noticed this with my own family, my niece and nephew are 18 and 16. Um, and they just expect technology to work and they always have a phone in their hand and it's just always there. Um, you know, I recently had a conversation with my niece. Um, she's at university now, but she was talking about um, when she was in high school and how they couldn't take the phone away. The teacher couldn't. And I'm like, well, I think they can if they want to. She's like, well, how would we call our mom if there was an emergency? I'm like the way they used to, you know, so for her, it's just an intrinsic. It's always been there kind of thing. And I think on some of these um, technology issues, I think uh, a younger generation doesn't appreciate this, the issue set because it just is for them. Like it's like plumbing, it's like water, it's like air. They don't realize that there's a bunch of uh, policy, at least in my world, a bunch of policy debates that go into making that world they live in exist. And so I think part of it is just exposure. Um, again, I, I, you know, I look back at my life and I, I never would have thought that, you know, Model United Nations, which I did for four years in high school and then four years in college. And we had a big college conferences and I participated in them as a kid actually really was the best career training I ever got because then I went and did that for the United States on technology specific issues. So I think, you know, the more you can give um, students, you know, both both men and women, you know, boy and girls this experience, the, the more they can realize these things exist. But, you know, I always, um, always get asked, like, you know, what's your advice to give to students? And I'm like, you've got to find something that's interesting to you. And you've got to find something that you want to learn more about. Because, you know, the day to day slog of any job cannot always be fun, right? Mm-hmm. So you've got to find something that you're intrigued by enough that you're going to want to keep learning about. And for me, it was technology. Um, and, and, you know, and for other people, it could be a different issue set, but it's important to find that passion, you know, regardless of what, what it is. Um, in terms of getting girls more involved in policy and technology policy issues, I think it's exposure and helping them understand the difference they can make. Yeah, you went on to that side, which you don't hear much of unless you're in those government or policy driven departments. So tell us, what was it about that side that you became curious about? So for me, um, you know, I was at my job at an interesting period uh, where the U.S. government um, was sort of faced with a big policy choice about how to deal with uh, the domain name system, which it had some residual oversight of because of initial, you know, National Science Foundation and DARPANET funding. And so when I was actually an intern at NTIA, Um, the Clinton administration started this privatization exercise. Um, So we're going to remove the U.S. government role and you're going to privatize and internationalize the space. 
And what that resulted in, it was supposed to be a two-year exercise. It took 18, by the way. Um, I finished before I left. Um, and uh, basically what it ended up being was, you know, the beginnings of and part of a broader global conversation about how to, how to globally govern the internet. Um, and in this case, sort of the underlying architecture infrastructure of the internet, the domain name system. So I was able to sort of, you know, uh, work with other stakeholders and other parts of the government and actually create a new glo a global governance regime for this one part of the internet. And so you're creating new things, you're learning new things, you're adapting the system. Um, you know, the Internet Corporation for Assigned Names and Numbers, ICANN was created. Um, and now, you know, ICANN went from, you know, an idea that people had when I was an intern to now being a not-for-profit, you know, corporation based in California that has three meetings normally, three meetings globally around the year where you have 2,000 people show up to talk about, you know, tech policy and how it relates to this aspect of it. Um, in the same way, one of the UN uh, processes I was involved in uh, this World Summit on the Information Society in 2003 and 2005 led to the creation of the Internet Governance Forum that the UN convenes. That's a meeting that happens every year, uh, just finished actually about a week and a half ago in Poland, this year's meeting. Um, and again, during you know non-restricted travel cycles, it, you'll get 3,000 people from around the world that will show up to talk about Internet governance and tech policy. And there's lots of different events and workshops. So, you know, I, I feel um, it was an interesting time. It was an interesting opportunity. I feel very privileged to have been involved in helping create and, and sort of uh, set up some of these initial systems. And now I go participate in them, right? You know, I've left government. Now I'm a stakeholder, both from a company perspective, but also from academia. It's a world and a system I get to introduce students to all the time, students that have a, are interested in technology or are piqued by a particular interest, and there's a place for them to go have those conversations now. So I, I feel really privileged for being able to have done that. And continue to do it. What, what is it about that space that makes you remain, a, you want to be part of that, you want to be part of that system now and going forward? So for me personally, I feel like, you know, having been a government official for close to 20 years and having a good understanding of how government works here in the US, but, you know, around the world, a lot of different countries, I still feel like the best way to solve some of our technology policy challenges is by having a conversation with all the people together in a room and having the best solution come forward, as opposed to just a government coming up with a set of rules and then trying to have an agency enforce them. And so that's, I still believe that. So I still think that creativity and innovation can happen in a room where you bring everybody together. And I feel like that world that and that environment lets that happen. So that's why I still participate and still defend it and still show up for it. Yeah. You've talked about, I, I guess, the importance of having the opportunity to do an internship or work experience as being quite pivotal to the start of your career. And then circling right round to you now mentoring students what three tips would you give for people who may be interested in working in a technology space but no idea where to get started and perhaps they are quieter or more introverted? So maybe, you know, how, how do they find their place in that world? So I would say a couple of things. Um, first, 
you know, find the things that you care about and, and, and try to follow the, the conversations on them, at least in the technology policy space and in any policy area discussion, there's always a bunch of uh, think tanks and there's always a bunch of academics who study it. And there's always a handful of government agencies in every country that specifically work on it. So try to figure out what those are try to figure out who the people are that work there. Um, you know, here in Washington, D.C., and, and I, I, I don't, this is not unique to Washington, D.C., but it's a very big Washington, D.C. thing, is there are always events to talk about policy issues. Those events are always open to the public, typically, and free. And in the current environment that we're in, they're mostly online, so you can do them from your home, so it's even easier. And to, especially if you're introverted and don't want to be faced to sit in a room with a bunch of people. And then the thing that I always advise students um, is that I've never met somebody that won't take 15 minutes to talk to you about their career. Right. People, people, for the most part, do what they do because they love it at some at some level and they're passionate about it. And if a student calls me and used to call me in government or email me and say, hey, I saw X, Y and Z. I'm really interested in learning about this. Would you have a coffee with me or would you do a phone call with me? I'm always going to take 15 or 20 minutes or 30 minutes um, to say, yeah, sure. OK. And, you know, in fact, I've met um, I, I met several folks I ended up hiring that way because they would call and reach out. Um, and, you know, there's lots of the students that I work with now when they're looking for different internships or job opportunities, I'll help match them with different companies or internships that I know about because they've made that reach out because they've made that effort. And even if you're an introvert, you know, doing a reach out and having a one on one with someone and gearing yourself up for that, you know, can be a little bit easier than going to a public event and trying to work the room to meet much people and networking. So, you know, don't be afraid to, to reach out and do that. And, and I feel like, again, with people working from home now, people have more time for that kind of stuff. But I, again, I always tell people Washington, D.C. is a company town. The company is government and policy. Everyone lives here because they love what they do. Otherwise, you would live in a different part of this country, probably. So there's plenty of people that love to talk about like their life experience. And and then, you know, you someone else's life experience won't be yours. You're not going to replicate it. But look and see who has the job that you think you want. And look and see the path they've taken because you might learn something from their experience maybe there's something you hadn't thought about or maybe there's an experience that maybe would help you or maybe there's a skill set i always tell the kids that I, I i talk to at the university make sure you do several internships and make sure you if you can and make sure you do them in environments where you're not sure you want to work if you think you want to work for a nonprofit, go intern for one and see if you really do because there's a culture associated with each space and the way to figure that you, you may think, oh, my, my dream is to do X. And then if you do an internship in that space, you can be like, oh, I hate this. I don't really want to do this. And it's and, and, it's, and it's sometimes it's easier to figure out what you want to do by figuring out what you don't like or what you don't enjoy as much. And, uh, and I guess just finally, with with the women in cyber program, how do you continually encourage women to be in it for the long haul and follow their passion? They want to have a gap because having families or need to be a carer or something else. How, what, how do you encourage them to keep going? So I really, this is my first time doing, you know, a formal mentorship program in this way. I've done one before. There's in the federal government, there's a you know, women in the federal government mentorship program. And I've done that before and mentored people, but I'd never, this is the first time I'd ever done one that was broad-based like a UN system. And that was people outside of the United States and outside of my current, you know, 
direct work sphere. And I really enjoyed the engagement. I really enjoyed getting, hearing all the different perspectives. And it was just nice to chat sometimes and realize that we're all having a shared experience, right? Or we, or they're going through something that I've been through before, or I was, you know, equally had a concern and they had been through it. So that was a nice, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a group conversation. It's not always about you giving advice. Sometimes it's about you learning from other people. Um, but I was always impressed by their desire and their push and their willingness to move forward. And, and one of the mentees, um, you know, I think she felt like there wasn't opportunities for her to do the things she wanted to do. And we talked it through and she went out and then made those opportunities for herself. So sometimes it's just a matter of having someone say to you, well, okay, where you currently are, that doesn't exist, but can you do a blog? Can you start some training? Can you do, you know, other things, which, you know, she did. And, 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 she, and then from that, she was able to see a path. So sometimes just having a fresh perspective can, can be helpful on, on that um, environment. But yeah, I thought it was a great experience and look forward to keeping in touch with them and um, expect great things from them going forward. What I loved about what you just said is being able to just talk about it out loud in a safe space or safe community or safe coach or mentor and then exploring those possibilities because no one person knows everything and what's out there and you can go and create them right go and create them particularly in today's world well and I think and sometimes you may not want to talk to your boss directly or your coworker directly right because you're not quite sure what that's going to mean but talking to someone that's outside of your space you know work environment directly but in a similar interest set, yeah, I think can provide this great network and this great uh, sounding board. So, yeah. Love that. Obviously, you co-founded your consultancy. Um, what's your, it always felt like you had, you had a drive and a mission, you know, a real passion. So what's next for you with this consultancy? So that's something I'm kind of, um, you know, trying to figure out myself as I think about what's next for me. Um, and, you know, working for government and public service gives a massive sense of purpose and sense of drive, at least it did for me. And leaving government, you know, I definitely feel a little bit of that gap. And working at the university kind of helps me fill that gap and, and I find it a different way. And I'm, I'm sort of wondering that myself. But when I look back, I'm kind of always wondering what's next, right? And, you know, when I describe my career, I look backward, it looks like perfectly lined and it makes sense. But it wasn't. It was always these inflection points in my own life and taking some quiet time to figure out what I wanted to do next and where I wanted to be. Um, And that's kind of, I think, where I am currently. I enjoy the work that I do now. I really like the people that I work with. It's one of the reasons why I did this this construct the way that we did. Um, And I like the university cycle. And I like having control of my time and my schedule in a way that I haven't before. Um, So what else I want to add back into that? I don't quite know yet. Um, and I'm being very judicious with what I add in and, and what, what I don't at this, this time as well. So maybe, you know, maybe it will just be, you know, consulting and, and, and university uh, work and research. People are uh, trying to get me to write a few books. So here and there. So I, I always said I wanted to write. And then when I have all this time, I really don't love writing. So I don't know. It's like trying it out. I always said I wanted to do it. And I'm doing it and I'm like, I don't really love it, but I'm at least doing it. And so that's the same thing, trial and error, the same advice I give other people. So I'm not sure. We'll see. Mm-hmm. And, I'm, and I'm, I'm, I always tell my students, um, 
And the kids that show up that know exactly who they are and what they want to be and what they want to do with their whole life scare me a little bit because I feel like life is not that well planned. Um, so I try to explain that to them that you never know what's going to happen and you have to kind of give yourself some space to be open to that as well. Yeah, yeah. And things can change, right? All the time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Great conversation with Fiona. I loved what you said and thank you so much for sharing your story. No, thank you very much for the invitation. It was nice to chat. Thank you for listening. I love to talk and work with people and businesses who want to achieve more. I challenge their thoughts to create possibility. Anyone can be part of the conversation. Leave me a message, ask a question and connect with me. 